All I can say is, wow. What an incredible response to last week's episode with John Herdman. It's the largest single week launch in the show's history, which after six months off is quite remarkable. So I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who listened and for those who took the time to message me about the interview, rest assured I passed a lot of your messages on to John. Now, this week's episode is with former Australian national netball team head coach, Lisa Alexander. Lisa won 83 of her 102 test matches in charge of the Aussie Diamonds, overseeing a Commonwealth Games gold medal and World Cup success. Now, she set her sights on becoming a trailblazer in a different sport, stating her new aim is to coach a men's professional AFL team. If nothing else, stick around for our conversation about Lisa's awesomely audacious new goal. Where others won't, Episode 62 is with Lisa Alexander. Lisa Alexander, how are you? I'm well. Um, it's a beautiful beautiful morning here in Avoca in Victoria, um, 60 kilometres, I actually probably know, 158 kilometres northwest of Melbourne in country Victoria. So a beautiful place. Lovely Wine part of the country, world. Wine country, yeah. Here in these, yes. The southernmost tip of our great dividing range. We live nearby, so it's very, very lovely. Absolutely. As a Melbourne boy, uh, I know the area well and a little bit jealous as I sit here freezing, as you can see, with about four hoodies on in, in downtown Toronto. <laughs> yeah, actually, we've just started out of our warmer days and my husband's now wearing shorts, so that's always a good sign that it's, <laughs> it's getting warmer. I'm trying to hold on to the shorts for as long as possible. It's shorts and Uggs, but... You can't do it, it for must too be long. a thing with guys. They just Australian guys, and they've got their shorts on. That's it. They don't <laughs> don't want to take them off. <laughs> uh, really looking forward to chatting some head coaching with you today. Um, uh, really launching this little series off the back of of writing a book about head coaching and specifically some of the the tough stuff and the the hard stuff and the human experience of actually being a head coach. And and you've spoken a lot about that. So. Before we dive in, though, I'm kind of starting all these interviews with the same question. When I say the tough stuff to you about head coaching, where does your mind go? It goes to, and this will be different because I think partly it's probably because I am a woman, um, primarily in a man's world of head coaching. Um, the toughest parts are actually the sacrifices that you have to make in order to pursue high performance and high performance people get this <laughs> without even they just you go you work in high performance and they just get it mm. they they understand without it you even having to say anything um so i'm not just talking about myself but i'm talking about my staff as well that when you're traveling you're on the road it's it's 24/7 and there's not a lot of time for anything else so that's probably one of the hardest things that I had to deal with 
in in the position was to being away from family and my husband and um you know you miss significant events here and there too um luckily in the national coaching role it's a little bit more flexible so you do get to have some time like I took a lot of time for my annual leave I would not just take four weeks I would take seven weeks at least um a bit like I would have had as a teacher in Mm -hmm. um the summer holidays um because I needed that to refresh um so that that to me is the toughest part of the job um because there's just those you know you're you're working so constantly that um your focus is very much on the job of what you're doing so if you are taken away with other things it does it wears you down over time as well I think um, and it's something that I know new head coaches have a lot of trouble dealing with is getting that balance right with family commitments, coaching commitments, all of those things together are very tough. So the support person, whoever's the the man behind the coach or the woman behind the coach or the who, who knows, a partner, has to be a very, very special sort of person to deal with the absolute highs and the absolute lows of high-performance sport. Um, and they, you know, they kind of have to love it as well, really, because it, it consumes your life and so they need to be a part of that and you've got to carve out times for that to happen and that's that's tough at times. Yeah, it's a very demanding job that you're, you know, you're on the phone, you're in communication all the time with lots of people and so therefore, you know, that that time that you have with your family is precious. Yeah. Let's just take a step back quickly for the particularly the North American uh, listeners of the show, which is about 40% of our, our listeners in uh, the United States and, and Canada. So just explain Wonderful. your... I love speaking to North Americans about netball. <laughs> exactly. So let's let's do that because I, I, this I don't want this to be underappreciated, and I've been big about promoting, um, you know, particularly Australian teams and New Zealand teams that, that maybe don't get the coverage, and, and netball as a sport doesn't get the coverage over here. So, um, just explain your world and international netball, and just how. Uh, how it all works, but also kind of the scale of it because, you know, the, the players are, are superstars where we're from. Yeah, well, that, that's right. I mean, from Australia, as you understand, it's the number one women's sport in the country. We have one million registered participants out of our population of 26 million approximately. Um, we probably have up to 4 million players who actually play, and this is men and women, play social netball, but they're not registered. So that's why we don't often count them in our counts. So it is really an extremely popular sport. So if you look at the Sport Australia statistics, it's one of the most popular team sports. It can be very easily played. Social netball's played with, you know, people at lunch times go down and play corporate um, leagues, etc., and you've got mixed netball at the local association, which I was always playing as a young person and through to my 40s, actually, is when I retired from playing. Um, so it's a very, it's embedded in our 
uh, every little country town in Australia has a netball team. Um, we also are very big on cricket as well, which is another sport that not many North Americans understand, cricket. It's sort of like as baseball is to you, cricket is to us. So, and it's based around the Commonwealth countries. So that's the same as netball. Netball's developed around the British um, colonisation of the world, basically, back in the day, and that's the countries that mostly play it. And the rivalry that we have with New Zealand, our cousins across the ditch, we call them, <laughs> um, because we fought together in a very important war in World War One. And when you go to Turkey and Gallipoli, you kind of really understand it. And I've been very fortunate to do that, to see the landscape and how the Aussies fought that war with the Kiwis. So we're very close, but we're also absolutely competitive. So it's like the big brother, little brother, big sister, little sister. And the Kiwis are just, they totally punch above their weight in so many sports. Uh, Netball's one of them. Netball is their biggest women's sport as well. Um, it often gets preference on the TV in pubs in New Zealand over the All Blacks sometimes. So that's you know, the All Blacks are the number one sporting team in New Zealand. The Kiwis, yeah, the, the All Blacks and rugby is the number one sport in New Zealand by far. However, the Silver Ferns and Netball are not far behind that. So the two teams, we've been major rivals for so many years and we've had classic matches. If you go through time and look at YouTube, you'll see some of those matches. The one that comes to mind that... I I think I'd encourage North American people to look up on YouTube would be the 2010 Commonwealth Games gold medal match in Delhi, in India. Um, that's an interesting story in itself. But that particular game went to double extra overtime and New Zealand finally won that game. And I think it was 85 minutes, which is a good 25 minutes more than the normal game that it went on for yeah. and people were exhausted. Um, it was a battle of a in the end, yeah, it went down to who could stand up, I think. <laughs> um, but it sent the be benchmark for me, I know, as the Australian Diamonds coach when I came into that position, I would make our um, sports scientists make sure our programs were getting the players fit enough to play 85 minutes of netball because... It was always a possibility in a final against New Zealand that you would do that. Yeah. So we've been the number one and number two teams for a long, well, as long as I can remember. England have only come through in the past 10 years when they've started to put more money into their um, high-performance sport through their sport lottery pro program. So netball actually started in England. So there, that was where our first world tournament was in 1963 when the team went out from Australia on a boat. It took them six weeks. They went via Sri Lanka and Colombo. Sri Lanka play netball because it's, again, a British colony in the day. And, um, you know, the, the players all practised on board the ship and that was part of what they did to prepare themselves for that tournament in 1963 where they defeated New Zealand in the final 
to win the World Championship, the first one. Um, Joyce Brown was the coach of that team, uh, sorry, the captain of that team. And then she went on to coach three world titles after that, whilst having four children. And uh, amazing woman. She's my mentor in coaching and, you know, what she hasn't done in netball is, you know, she, she could coach any, any team in any sport, I believe, and still achieve, um, you know, the highest results because she's just an all-round fantastic person and um, an, an astounding coach. The way she coaches is amazing. So I've been very lucky to have her as a mentor. Um, so netball is big in Australia and New Zealand. It is like, well, it's like your, I guess, your soccer, you would call it. Everyone goes down and plays it. It's in the community. So it goes from the grassroots or the community level, the village level, the town level, all the way up to the, the national level of the Diamonds. So we always say it's one of the hardest teams to get into in Australia, like the cricket team is as well. Our cricket team is very hard to get into as well because so many, you know, players play cricket. Mm-hmm. And we have our fantastic women's team and men's team now in cricket. In Nepal, we do have a men's Australian team, but it's not recognised by an international federation, which still is promoting the fact that we are a uniquely female game because the game was invented actually in America um, by English school teachers, and then they took that game back to... England so that's where it started to thrive and it was developed out of basketball so it was called women's basketball for many years right up until 1973 I think and so it is now netball and men play netball Uh, it's just that we don't recognize it Um, it's up for argument at the moment in our world council because we we need to become more inclusive But, of course, we stretch across many countries and particularly the African countries uh, that play netball, for example, Malawi or Namibia, Ghana, Kenya. What tends to happen is it's actually the only sport that women can play. So if we start to get men's um, netball coming in, particularly in those countries, it would probably exceed the social um, growth of the actual society before the sport, if you know what I mean. So mm-hmm. that's why Nepal's decided to push the it being uniquely female and a female sport, particularly in Africa, so that at least the, the women there have their sport that they can hold on to. Um, we've had great athletes come out from Africa to play and one of them just won the most valuable player in our top world-class domestic league here, the Super Netball, called Mike and Wenda, and you can see her story on YouTube as well. It's an inspiring story about somebody who came from the dusty plains of Malawi, extreme poverty, to come all the way to Victoria to play netball, and she plays for a country in the international um, competitions, but she now represents the Melbourne Vixens in the Super League and she's just a, a, a delight to work with as an athlete but also as a person and she goes back to Malawi and obviously 
she gets paid as a professional netballer here in Australia and a lot of that money goes back home to her family to help support and raise her family. So there's many stories like that about particularly the African players that have gone to England or to New Zealand or Australia to play professional netball. Um, they certainly support their families back at home, particularly, you know, the Jamaican athletes as well, Janiel Fowler and Ramelda Aiken, who've played in our league for many years, they, they certainly send money back home as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, yeah, if you haven't seen netball, uh, definitely check it out. Uh, Fast-paced, so skillful. Uh, If you're a sports scientist and you want to talk about uh, D-cell, go and have a look at at netball. One of my great – well, he's a mentor as well who works in the physical conditioning area is Dean Benton and he's worked in English rugby and – He's a, a big fan of Vern Gam, Gambetta's and um, he he just tells me all the time how brutal netball is and we we still can't measure the accelerations and decelerations quite as, as minutely as we would want to to actually show how intense the game is, but it is majorly intense and, um, you know, that's part of the the beauty of it as well. We haven't measured it to the extent it's that some other sports have been. And I kind of think that's okay because that actually doesn't put a straight jacket on us. Yeah. It helps us to evolve the game without being held back by too much in the way of, oh, we can't do that because that's not going to condition someone specifically for this. Um, We've had a lot of work on injury management over the past 10 years when I've been in charge of the Diamonds, and that's always been a great tension is between the physiotherapists and the strength and conditioning coaches. We've had great tension. But it's been good. It's also developed highly world-recognised programs. People should get on the Netball Australia website and have a look at our knee program. It's called the Knee program as in K-N-E-E because we've had so many knee injuries in netball um, our physiotherapist has designed a program that goes from the very grassroots up to the elite level of preventative work for um, preventing ACL injuries in netball so it's a it's a fantastic program you can it's for free you can just have a look at it it's got videos all sorts of things on it and it's applicable to other sports as well. So I use it and have used it a lot. Um, I actually helped Alana develop the program. We used a lot of the trial activities with the Diamonds and we had a significant reduction in our ACLs after we introduced all that preventative work, which I'm very proud of because it's just debilitating for the athletes who get an ACL and they're out for 12 months. It's... it's um, it's not good for their mental health, that's for certain. Yeah, absolutely. Let me tie a couple of those ideas together. So I want to talk a little bit about coaching performance and, and you were mentioning before about, you know, 75, 85-minute games. Um, how, how did you go about setting yourself up for success as a really, you know, a head coach in particular is a high-performance knowledge worker? as opposed to an athletic worker, 
how how did you try to develop your own performance in in that sense in terms of making sure that you were best positioned to make good decisions recognize patterns you know all of the kind of brain activity that's needed the emotional activity the emotional regulation that's needed from a head coach not just in game but all the other elements yeah. that go into it uh look i've probably developed a lot of those skills over time um being a trained teacher, I think, has helped enormously because you have to have control and you have to understand behaviour of groups and individuals to, um, and you know, assist and support them to learn and grow and be educated. Um, I taught mathematics and physical education, so I had the sort of cognitive brain element of mathematics that I often would get the um, kids outside doing physical maths um, and I even think of yesterday when I was gardening I was doing a maths um, little activity where we were measuring the circumference of a, some chicken wire we're going to put around some trees and my husband said to me can you you can measure the radius and it's just all those little things that you remember you did with with students and um just managing them in that that physical environment and then also teaching physical education, the actual skills of a game. And so all of those things together have certainly helped my communication skills around recognising, observing, um, undertaking reflective practice because as a teacher you had to do that. You had to review your classes at the end of every class um, so it's a discipline of that. It's the energy that's required in teaching that's enormous um, and the preparation prior to. So I think what I loved about coaching is that I actually I actually got more preparation time to take my sessions than I've ever had when I was teaching because teaching right. you have to do on the fly a bit more. So all of those skills of how to, you know, manage your energy, I learnt... Um, as a young person, as a young leader, I was thrown into doing leadership quite early with, um, uh, I think in my second year of teaching, I was a mathematics coordinator at the Seaford Carrum High School in Melbourne. And that was a tough school, but it was also a great school because there were many beginning teachers with me. So we had our own little support group. Plus, it was a new style curriculum, so I could really get my teeth into the cognitive side of developing curriculum for young people, particularly for mathematics, which loses engagement. So all of those skills of understanding how to engage people, how to influence, how to lead a department of teachers taught me some great lessons um, which I, you know, I realise them now. I, I even forget that I've done a lot of these things and then I go back and think about it and I go, well, you know, no wonder I learnt a lot of that stuff in my profession as a teacher. I also undertook a lot of professional development um, as a young teacher as well. So I started the journey of self-development and <clears throat> uh, a very important part of that was a, a book called um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and I've talked about this in coaching education sessions and leadership sessions a lot. Um, it really formed the basis of my 
time management, I guess, for want of a better term, and the understanding of purpose to drive priorities. Um, I inherently knew it anyway because of my drive in academia and also in sport, but it just helped me to have a framework of it, particularly in business and in education and running your life. Um, you know, you, what your big rocks are, um, what the priority should be in your schedule, and that helped me with sport particularly. Um, managing, you know, sometimes it would be quite crazy. I would be teaching full-time, have two kids and coaching a National League team. I think that was my first year of National League coaching in 1997, and I often say that that was just a disaster because there were too many balls in the air and you can't do that properly. So you have to learn to prioritise what's important what's not, and I've learnt that the hard way because I bite off probably too much sometimes. Um, but I've learnt over time to to do a better job of that. I'm not perfect. Um, I use a journal. I reflect on events. I try to learn to do better each time after each event that happens. Um, and I was lucky enough to have um, what I would consider one of the top teamwork facilitators to work with with the Diamonds, Ray McLean, on our team development and culture work. But that just wasn't on the team. That That's also on an individual basis as well. So you have your own personal trademark, you have your own values and goals that you work towards and you, you know, endeavour to be a better leader every day. And that's what I endeavoured to do. Um, and I've also, I've done coach education for a long time as well. I think because I was a teacher, I was expected to step up in netball, not only get my own accreditations in netball. So now I'm a, I'm a accredited high-performance netball coach and I have been for, I think it's about 20 years now. Um, you have to continually update. So you don't just get your qualification doesn't just stay there. You have to continuously update it, a bit like teaching. And so um, I've always, at the same time, taken coach education or mentoring or alongside that, and that's really yeah. helped me to learn more about coach coaching um, by teaching it to others. And I think that's the best way for anyone to learn something is actually to have to teach somebody else. Um, so a lot of the work that I've done in coaching has been mentoring particularly high-performance, young high-performance coaches that want to step up the ladder. Um, and one of the things I talk about is the, the game day coaching and how different it is to anything else that you do um, in coaching. And it is a performance yeah. Um, I've, you know, said that it's it's you need to actually prepare yourself as well as you do, as well as you expect your athletes to prepare themselves. So a lot of it's role modelling. So if I expected the diamonds to be doing, having a nap or you know eating the right foods at breakfast or all those sorts of things that we do in hub life together, then I had to model that as well. And I actually. Being an athlete myself, 
back in the day, I knew that those practices and disciplines of preparing yourself for a performance was really important. Um, I probably didn't do them as well as <laughs> some other athletes because I would have lots of excuses. I couldn't do an ice bath because I probably had to get home and cook dinner for my children. But um, all of those little details that need to be done have to be done. And so for you to be able to coach at your very best at the end of a tournament meant that you had to yourself manage your time, your nutrition, your your diet, your amount of exercise you got, and also your sleep particularly Mm -hmm. and recovery really well to be able to manage the cognitive load that you're under for that week tournament because it's massive. Um, and I often liken it to pilots. I lo- I really admire pilots um, because they have to be concentrating for that period of time and I really need them to sleep well before they're... Because, <laughs> you know, they have to, the safety of everyone on board is so critically important. Yeah. So the, the way they prepare themselves for that, event I think coaches need to do the same thing I don't think they do it enough I think most coaches don't get enough sleep most high performance you know people in business are the same I think they don't look after themselves as well as what they should and therefore they will crash and burn at some stage because it's just we can't push our bodies that hard um, it's it's just it, it will reach a tipping point something's got to give always and it might be your relationship it might be you know you drink too much because you're trying to cope with this there's some sort of pimple that's always got to be squeezed and that's the very foundation of why I started writing this book and the more conversations I've had with head coaches in different environments whether it's you know European soccer netball whether it's over here the big four sports uh, it's that same pattern and everyone saying, yeah, I, I need to do those things um, and, and trying to create the space for them, particularly here in North America where you've got leagues that are daily or, or almost bi-daily. And so you, you could be in a week, you could be in four different time zones and, and so you've got you know, all your reviews to do on all the games. You've got all your, your preparation, you've, your, checking into a hotel at 2 a.m. Um, and and it just ends up on this this cycle. And again, that kind of motherly, fatherly element of coaching comes out and, and you end up giving everything to them. And uh, again, it breaks at some point because you just can't continue it. And, you know, the same hyper arousal that the players have after a game. So the coaches can't sleep until 2 a.m. as well. So they slink down to the, the, the bar for a couple of drinks before bed. That then continues because that's the only way you can get to sleep, et cetera, et cetera. And it's on, it's on a hiding to nothing. That's why um, I was so fortunate. Our exercise physiologist, Dr. Laura Juliff, her PhD was on sleep recovery. And so her paper is wildly available, I think, around the world, you, you, if you looked it up. And... It critically important for our athletes and we trained really hard to make sure the athletes all had their own individual sleep um, programs and the ones that did have really major problems with sleep we actually got them into a sleep center and got it sorted mm-hmm. 
Um, it's very individual, as you would imagine. It's like at the moment I've got chooks for the first time. That's hens, chickens, you know, that lay eggs. Fascinating. I mean, it's the same thing with their circadian rhythms. They won't lay eggs if we don't get them up early enough or, you know, have their routine right. So, you know, no wonder people break if they don't get their sleep. And that's where growth happens. And that's what I try and say to the athletes. When we're training so hard, we have to recover hard. Mm-hmm. Now, you cannot train. Like, you know, Dean Benton, my mentor in physical air conditioning, will say to me, Lisa, we can get these athletes training harder. Like, they can do three sessions a day, but they have to have naps and they have to have recovery time. Um, that's built into the program. And so it's exactly the same for high-performance executives, head coaches in anything. Um, Some people can cope with less sleep, but if you're like a normal person like me, I have to have my decent six hours. And, you know, that's what I've been shown. And we've done sleep monitoring and we've shown, you know, it actually was great feedback for me because it showed me I'm a good sleeper which I thought I wasn't, but yeah. I actually was. Yeah. So that feedback cycle of you thinking you're a bad sleeper actually affects your sleep. But if you know that you're a good sleeper, then it can be just a few little things that you, you know, you sleep hygiene that you fix. Um, and it's an amazing difference. Um, same with pain or anything that's we're dealing with. It's just um, I think what I've learned over time, it's so holistic and it's never just the, you know, the fact that you've been on the computer for six hours. It could be just the stress and the burden of, you know, looking after a team of athletes. You've got to understand that if you're going to be at your best to look after those athletes, you have to look after yourself, number one. If you don't do it and role model it, well, you're just being not real to your, and I call it in Australian vernacular, fair income. I'll, I'll put that i'll put the translation in the show notes <laughs> please put the translation in being fair income means doing doing what you say and you know actually doing it so if you say you're going to do something you do it and you show those actions um that is important for the athletes as well mm-hmm. because they look to the coach they see the coach being a workaholic and they go, oh, the coach is saying for us to recover, but I better do some more skill training or whatever it is. I think getting that balance right is extremely important. You talked about big rocks earlier. I've got two more big rocks that I want to talk to you about. The first one is, is staff cohesion. We often, oh, yes. we often talk about, and you talked about trademarks, and I work with Ray earlier and leading teams, and, and we again, we often give that to the players let's let's go and develop a you know a saying or an acronym or whatever that's going to represent us but often that kind of stops there and and it doesn't continue to the the leadership team but you guys went and and built your own trademark amongst the staff the pact am i right that's right we called it the pact we had our special little actually before covid (laughs) it was like the the fist um, bump or wiggle, I don't know. Um, it was it was extraordinarily important because it was 
um, what we would call now in leading teams, because I work for them one day a week, we would call it a um, an improvement program. It's not just about leadership with the team. It's actually the whole organisation going through a cultural change, basically, which includes leadership, of course. And um, whilst we would have loved to have done it with the board of Netball Australia and everybody, they didn't choose to do that. I brought it in just for the diamonds, but that meant the staff had to be part of it. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. And one of the person, well, one of the people who actually had to be, I guess, influenced first of all was our physiotherapist Steve Hawkins. Now, Steve is actually the head physiotherapist of the VIS now, where I'm a board member, which is a Victorian Institute of Sport. He's a dear personal friend of mine, but he is one of the top physiotherapists, I I believe, in the world. But he was our person we had to convince. And Ray actually had to work with Steve because Steve was not convinced that leading teams' work would work, actually, because it was seen to be a male sport thing, Mm -hmm. whereas Ray really believes it's a human element. And I'm the same. I think because we're both teachers and we've both taught co-ed schools and had boys and girls equally in our classrooms and we have daughters and sons, we don't think that one or the other should be favoured over the other and we think of people as humans. We know that we're probably very different in some areas, men and women, but there are areas that are very common and we are alike. And I think one of those is in this area of, of... of development of culture. I think, you know, Rick Charlesworth, one of our very, very best hockey coaches and world hockey coaches here, he's a medical doctor, he's been a parliamentarian, he's just, he's the most awesome brainy person I know. He actually said that he found it easier to develop team with the women's team that he coached rather than the men's, which I thought was interesting. Um, if he went back now and did it again, I reckon he'd say it wasn't necessarily whether they were men or women. It was him and how he reacted to that group rather than the other way around. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. it's a very interesting thing and it'd be interesting to ask him about that again now. But in any case, Ray had to work with Steve. Steve had to be convinced. He was our key centre of influence. If Steve was convinced, he would help us to I guess myself and Ray to drive that through the staff uh, the players had already had, they they loved it they were straight into it and we did um, we did some together sessions to begin with where we talked about the current state of the team and the squad and how it was working and that's when the stories of entitlement and um, clickiness came out about oh, well, she has that position on the bus and if somebody else sits in that seat, well, there's hell to pay. And just that whole thing of inducting young people, like I've heard horrible stories about how rookies and new freshmen and everything get inducted into whatever, which just shouldn't happen because it's actually bullying. Um, But we wanted to change things. And that that day was a, was a big day. We did work on our team development and leadership and culture development all day. Instead of doing training out on the netball court, 
which many of the past Australian coaches would have been appalled that I'd spent a whole day on team development instead of skills. But I knew it was necessary to get the work going that we wanted to do to become the world's best. And it was a critical part of that. And so the staff also had some separate sessions because the staff had to understand their role. Their role is not to be the stars. The players are the stars. And that's a hard thing for some staff to understand. They come into sport because they want to be a star and they love it and they, we, we call them in, uh, this is going to sound really horrible, but we call them liniment sniffers in Australia. Now, liniment is the smell of the massage oil in an Australian rules football change room. And I know, Cody, you just, you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and you don't want people who are there just for that, to rub shoulders with the stars. You want them to be people who are fair income about being the best that they can be in their role to support the athletes. So that was a really critical piece of what Ray worked with our staff. And so we came up with our own trademark, which actually enacted and evoked that idea that we were not the main attraction. It was the players. Our job was to make the players look good and feel good and play good. Right. <laughs> and so that means you leave your egos at the door. And you work together as a staff. And I had a flat structure at the staff. The staff, Some of the staff never really coped with that well because they were so indoctrinated with top-down authority and many people are still like that yep, in my age group particularly. But younger people just will not accept that these days because they're smarter, they're more educated and they understand that you get things done together as a team. So that's what we did. And our pact meant professional, approachable, committed team because we didn't want anyone in the team to think they couldn't go to any of the staff members and get some support for whatever they needed. So there were areas that we took responsibility for well-being. We had a well-being manager, but everyone was responsible. Was everyone. For yeah. Yeah. And yeah. as I said to Alana, one of my physiotherapists, you're my greatest psychologist in many respects because they're on your t table and you're talking to them. So the positivity and what we're trying to get through as a team needed to come out on that table or the players often went to the physio to have a break from it as well. So Alana would be great at talking about any other sort of crap <laughs> or daily life because... It, you know, that would take the athlete's mind off the grind and the hardness of what they were going through. So my staff were challenged to be world's best in their own area. Like, Alana, you're the world's best physiotherapist for netball, and I think she is. And, Mitch, you're my world's best performance analyst. And my scientists knew I didn't care how much they know I didn't care. They could have every degree in the world. It was how they got their messages across to the athletes that counted. So if the athletes were enacting the behaviours from their 
whatever it was, whether it was the sleep diaries with Laura or, you know, analysing a match with Mitch, then that was what was important to me. And that was reinforced a lot. So we would review together as a staff group a lot about our own performances and judge ourselves against our behaviours. That's probably the area that was not as well done in the latter part of my time with the Diamonds because lots of things got in the way of that. And that's the greatest lesson I've learnt from that time is that actually didn't help us to win those. We got very close. We lost the two world champs by one and com games by one as well. But if we if I'd nailed the staff work in a much higher way in that time, we would have won. So if I had my time again, that would be the area that I would definitely work on. The players were fantastic. They they loved all of it to do with the sisters in arms trademark and the behaviours and the way they worked with Ray and was were challenged by Ray and how we reviewed things because we wanted to be world's best in everything we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it goes underappreciated. And I, I've spoken a lot about this recently in that we're kind of searching for this, you know, 0.01% from somewhere in physiology that I, I don't think is there or sports science or whatever. And I actually think there's major percentage points to be gained in the coaching staff and the people yeah. around yeah, I think, Cody, that's been proven here in Australia with the performances of the three particularly big sports here in the grand finals just last weekend. You know, you had Richmond Football Club win the AFL grand final. You had the Melbourne Storm win the NRL grand final, the Rugby League, and you had the Melbourne Vixens win the Super Netball. Now, all of those teams, I reckon, coped with hub life, coped with all the adapting, everything that you had to cope with. They got thrown lots of curveballs. Mm-hmm. They were all from Victoria, which, you know, is our, our state and our town. Um, and so, therefore, they had, Victoria's had the hardest lockdown with COVID, all of those things. So they've had their families back in Victoria in Melbourne while they're playing in Queensland, suffering, actually suffering. Um, they've had to deal with that. and. I think it was I think it was the team dynamics and the culture and all those little details of the psychology, the performance psychology, but they had a greater purpose. And one of them was, and the storm have said this, was that they were playing for the people of Victoria. It was front of mind. Yeah. The Vixens were doing the same thing. Richmond to a certain extent as well. But they had that purpose, and that's that what you would call the magic that happens, but it happens because of all of those mini interactions, the expectations you have on the staff for behaviour and the players, etc. You know, they can train as hard as the other team, but if they do the magic, they will win. I've seen it time and time again over my career. Yeah, like I'm a student of of Aussie rules and, and AFL and always have been. And and I've been communicating to my guys about this is here's why this is important is you look at Richmond as an example, 
So for all the talk about uh, game plans and tactics and, you know, it's the top 75 books on Amazon are all about tactics in coaching rather than, you know, the, the psychological and social elements of it. Richmond's yeah. base game plan is move the ball forward. Yes, it was funny. I was talking to one of my colleagues who I'm doing a high-performance leaders course and he played it um, a little, it's not a little, it's actually quite a good competition, the Ballarat League of Football. And he told me Redan, the team he was playing for in Australian Rules Football, were playing Richmond style 10 years ago. That's how they did it. It was a run-and-gun style, but it suited the strengths of their team. So that's what they did. And he said it's quite interesting watching Richmond do that now. And it seemed to be this great, you know, new way of playing Australian rules football. It's been around for years. <laughs> Everything is new again that's old again or it old is. again that's new again. That's it. And the last big rock that I wanted to talk to you about, talking of AFL, and I, I love that you did this, is you said you were going to apply for the next AFL coaching vacancy yes and you said that domain expertise aside head coaching is head coaching and high performance coaching is is high performance coaching both of which i absolutely love what was the reaction like and and why is that a goal of yours Oh, it's a very good question it's a goal because it's a stretch for me it makes me excited about the challenge I think it's the challenge aspect it's also a glass ceiling let's be honest about that in our country particularly but you know I know in America and North America there's been many more women now starting to break into the ranks of the NFL particularly and in the you know NBA NBA so just to make it clear with your audience is I'm not going for an AFLW job and that's what I get asked a lot like even one of my colleagues, Michael Checker, who was the Wallabies head coach, he even said to me when I said it, he said, um, oh, so you're going to coach an AFLW team? And I said, no, I mean an AFL men's team because, and I don't, look, again, I want to make it clear, I'm there's nothing wrong with the AFLW and it's going to be high performance soon, but it's not high performance yet because it's just in its infancy as a league. Even though women have been playing football for years, they haven't had the organisational system levels that the AFL men have. Now, that's a problem in our society, yes, yes, but at the moment it is what it is. I feel my skill set is actually suited more for the top level of AFL men's than coaching, say, a Voca football club down the road from me here yeah whereas many football people think I need to start there and I try and explain to them it's like asking the CEO of let's say JP Morgan (laughs) right in in New York then not being able to be the CEO of say Facebook just because he hasn't got the technical capability of coding Mm -hmm. Um, now that's just ridiculous. He would never be. He's going to be the CEO because he's a great CEO, not because he knows how to code versus financial literacy of you know being the banker. Um, 
it's a very interesting thing. So that's the argument I'm trying to get people to understand now. And I'll get there, but I might not get there myself. I but I would like to pave the way for other women to get into high performance coaching because I think we're missing out on talent. We're missing talent. Absolutely. Coaching talent. Uh, it's absolutely. like it's the same, you know, we haven't got enough Indigenous players in our netball team. We haven't. We're missing out on talent in our country. But, you know, I don't want that to happen. No, I, I agree with you. And and the reason that I liked it is is nothing to do with the gender side. It's to do with the fact that you, you're just right in your analysis of it, in that the, the domain expertise is one thing but and i've had this conversation with someone in in english rugby circles like i could go and coach a rugby team mm. um i know you could <laughs> right i and, could as well i know you could uh, and again that's why that's why I, like uh, it, it's it'll be great for obviously like you said the, that pathway for, for other women yeah. but yeah. The, the baseline is just that you are right you can do that job and yes. you don't need any more resume padding to prove that. No. Um, and and I will get told here, though, that I haven't got my, say, level three AFL. But what I'll say to them is I actually did it when I did my university degree. I actually did. And Ross Smith, who is a lecturer here in Melbourne, can attest to that because he took me for it. So I know how to teach kicking and, you know, do you reckon tactics have changed a bit? Do you reckon I watch it now and watch the tactics? Like this is the whole thing. And as Dean Benton, my, you know, I'll mention Dean again, said to me, I could easily improve the bottom six teams in the AFL now if they wanted to take the chance of putting me in charge. Yeah, agreed. Um, you know, this is something that I've been talking about for a long time. It's in Where Others Won't, the book. Uh, I wrote a whole chapter about the fraudulence of experience. Um, you know, I, there's there's a million examples to, to go around about professionals that didn't play at that level that went on to yeah. become amazing coaches. Muhammad Ali's coach never fought a single fight in his life. Exactly. And, um, and a horse doesn't ride a horse. And a horse doesn't ride a horse. I mean, um, come on. <laughs> Maybe we should do that, though. <laughs> Maybe after you've got your chooks in line, you can you can start that as your next project. Yeah, the project. chooks are a yeah. challenge, I tell you. They're just amazing. <laughs> amazing. I love them. Mate, I know you've got to go. So uh, let us know where we can follow along with you. You're on Twitter? Yes, I'm on. Um, you can actually contact me through LinkedIn now. Um, that's where a lot of my global contacts come. So you'll find Lisa Alexander on LinkedIn. Um, you'll also see a, a, a link to leading teams who I'm working with one day a week, which will talk a little bit more about culture and dy dynamics and team development. Um, and also my Twitter handle is coach, capital C, coach, Lisa, L-I-S-A, capital L-A-A, Lisa A. So follow me on Twitter. I love Twitter because it's, again, global. So I can talk to all my netball people around the world. So I'll often put something in there and one of the coaches from England will comment on it overnight. And so 
it, it's brought about a great closeness of our global coaching um, group together, which has been fantastic. I'll be doing some work with Tracy Neville at the end of this month on the Commonwealth Games from 218. We're going to both sit together and analyse that um, over Zoom. I think it'll be available. We'll we'll put it out there. I'm also on Instagram, Coach Lisa Alexander. I sometimes put some photos up there of Chooks or <laughs> our first egg. Um, but I also put some coaching quotes on there quite a bit. I actually took up the challenge of... Um, one of my, I guess she's a colleague you could call her. She, her name's Jenny Williams and she's the sister of Mark Williams who was the coach of Port Adelaide Football Club here in, um, in Australia, in Adelaide. Uh, she's a lacrosse player. Now, I know many of you North Americans know lacrosse, but Australia are actually really good at lacrosse and we've been world champions, I believe, at different times. Jenny was a lacrosse player, but she's also a psychologist and she's very much into she supports Mark of course as her brother in coaching um but she challenges me from time to time so she put out to me oh you keep on retweeting the male coach quotes all the time how about we start some female coach quotes so I put one out there and it was really interesting it was the quote of um high performance happens when um People are doing the right thing when no one's watching. I think it was it was a little bit shorter than that. And then I got, oh, that's not original. That's C.S. Lewis and <laughs> from the Lion Witch in the Wardrobe or something. And I was just saying to Jenny, it just you know, it's so typical. You do put something out there, and you do get some quite random um, replies. But the whole idea was for me to encourage other female coaches to put their quotes out there that they like so I'll try and do a few more of those so people can follow me yeah no that's great and this show too like I have so many unresponded to emails and dms from female coaches that I've tried to get on um we need more conversation there's a, a huge gap that is missing from your coaching experience and and we need those conversations to happen and you don't need to be a five-time championship winner to get an opinion on coaching. That's um, right. And I, I, I've said that too. I know one of my colleagues in journalism, in sports journalism, Richard Hines, and he's terrific. He's a great writer. He said to, he rang me and said, would you be interested in the Fitzroy director of coaching um, role? And I said, look, if I was living in Fitzroy, I'd probably put my hand up for it because it sounds great. But it's for the football club, of course. And so what I said to him, why don't you get Michael, who's Michael Pickering, who's on the board, to ring me and I'll talk to him about it. What I suggested to him was maybe go and look for some other netball coaches because many of the netball coaches I know, particularly the ones that have got, you know, the higher qualifications, they do that in their netball clubs and they do it really well. It's the practice of coaching yeah. and educating I said they will be able to do that in your football club really well so broaden your group that you're recruiting from see how it goes so they're prepared to take take up that challenge hopefully they will fingers crossed so I'll try and encourage some more to come on your show yeah Cody. 
I'll 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 tweet you and I know and you can... I know a few. Yeah, I've got. I mean, I don't know Sandy Brondello, but of course she would be fantastic. So I reached um, out to Sandy on LinkedIn recently, so I'm trying to get yeah. her on. Um, she would be great, and Carrie Graff, I'm certain, would come on. She's done um, another one for the guy over in Prague that's doing Great Coaches podcast as well. Yeah. They're great. And um, there's another one, Cheryl Chambers, who's been who's the assistant coach to Sandy Brondello, who coaches in Melbourne as well. So there are, you know, and there will be netball coaches that will would love to come on as well, I'm certain. Let's do it. We'll load them up. Lisa, thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thanks, Cody. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to keep an eye out for my upcoming book, The Tough Stuff which will be out in early 2021. You can visit codyroyal.com to keep up to speed with the book and all my other work. Thanks again for listening.